in just a few years, we have gone from managing, just if you go back to 2015-16, we Norad managed around 400 million euros. Now, from this year, 2020, we will manage around 2 billion euros. So it's a big change in the administrative setup, giving Norad a big role. And also the idea is to for the ministry to give the policy directions and do the strategy and to give more space within those strategies for Norad to spend money according to the signals we get. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. The mantra of globalization supported increased foreign aid to and trade with low-income countries. The proclaimed goal was to reduce poverty and promote economic growth and development. But aid policies have increasingly become both complex and fragmented. And some argue that there is an unprecedented international policy overload when it comes to aid and development. Indeed, some even claim that we're witnessing so-called aid fatigue. And many traditional providers of aid or donors are also revisiting, reevaluating their activities and the overarching role and impact of aid aimed to promote economic development. In a world which was already struggling to cope with numerous crises, even before the COVID pandemic struck, and these include things like, well, inadequate finance, food insecurity, and of course, climate change, the pattern and flow of development aid to low-income countries in the near future is potentially going to change in fundamental ways. My guest today is Bård Vegard Suljel, the Director General of the Norwegian Agency for Development Cooperation, or NORAD. Bård Vegard has substantial political experience, having served as a member of parliament and party secretary for the Socialist Left Party in Norway, and also subsequently as Norway's Minister of Education and Minister of Environment. I began by asking him to reflect on the moral, economic and political foundations of aid or development assistance and whether it is still relevant in today's world. Indeed, isn't aid an outdated concept these days? Well... (laughs) First, thanks for having me, and, and, and great to be here with you, uh, Dan, and, and thanks for asking such easy questions in the start of this conversation. It's, it's like the to be or not to be question of development cooperation, but, uh, and let me start by uh, answering you the last part, which I partly also did by referring to development cooperation. The term, the term aid 
is to me a bit outdated. Yes, for 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 several reason reasons, and, and one is that um, I think the one of the uh, one of the great underlying ideas of the development goals that are now the sustainable development goals that are now kind of the the global agenda work plan for what we do is that we in in a sense we are all developing countries and if you look at at the, the all of the targets and and the indicators no country can can say that we have reached the, we have gone all the way um it's a common uh, effort to reach them so the perspective of the, the original ex- perspective of aid we are here we want to help you to be like us, uh, I think is outdated. Also, I think we have gone quite a way in understanding that if development cooperation or aid or whatever you call it, I mean, the, the actual, the, the, the task of, of supplying money to projects to, for countries to develop, if it's going to work, it has to be based on some kind of, uh, of, uh, interlinked cooperation common willingness to invest in something uh, what we uh, what we call the the, the the responsibility of the recipient as well and just cooperation more than aid uh, describes at least how it ideally should be to work well but that was ju- that's just um, the the rhetorical part uh, of, of, of it then it, and the question, do we need aid? I mean, it's a relevant and good question. There's a graph I, I, uh, I uh, show a lot that's not, it's not possible to show here, but it shows that if we go back a generation to approximately 1990, development aid from, from Western donors to, to developing countries was the main capital flow from rich countries to poor countries. It was more than private sector capital, more than remittances. It was the dominant part. If you look at it now, it's totally opposite. Both of the remittances is more than three times. Private sector capital flows, even though they've gone down, or only foreign direct investments, which is just part of private capital, is more than three times. So, in a way, if you look at it in, in a quantitative perspective, it's definitely true that other capital flows are more important than aid. When aid uh, or development cooperation or, or donor money still plays a role, I think it, it's for two reasons. Uh, one of them is very easy to see right now, is that aid is actually more robust than many other types of, types of capital flows. While remittances is probably down 20 to 30% this year, private capital flows could be down even more. Development aid is, is it's probably, I will guess it's a bit, uh, a little bit down because the, the gross domestic product of many countries go down, but it's relatively stable compared to other kinds of capital. And the other reason is, of course, that development aid can do can do a few jobs, can reach countries, regions, can uh, be used for purposes where private capital, whether it be from individuals or companies, will not uh, invest. So yes, development aid uh, or cooperation or donor money has a 
role to play, but it's certainly different from the ideas behind it when it started, and it's also different from the role it played just a generation ago. Some of the, uh, and you're familiar with these debates, some of the debates have been highlighting, at least in terms of the arguments against aid, is that it isn't effective, that it is used as a political tool. Increasingly, there's this kind of feeling. I've written about it myself, about how aid is used as a tool for the national interest. We want to promote our own interest. This is the case also in Britain. You're aware of your colleagues at DFID now being merged with the with the foreign office. So, uh, so aid effectiveness or the lack of aid effectiveness, the political tool, but also this kind of feeling that uh, aid symbolizes an element of colonialization. It is the white man syndrome, somebody trying to save the others. There's this argument that aid builds on notions that are outdated even though the arguments for aid could be based on solidarity, which is something I know you've written about, right? So my question is, do you see, what is the role of solidarity in today's world? Is it outdated? Should we be just talking about national interest, effectiveness, what works? Or is there, what is the role of ideology? What about solidarity with the most marginalized? Solidarity with the groups that are not able to speak for themselves, uh, and also helping people who, you know, maybe giving aid to an area to certain people where you can't really measure whether it is working or not, but you think it's a good thing. It's a it's a good thing to save humans. Well, I'm a big fan of the concept of solidarity, like you probably know, and and like people who know me from the Norwegian debate will know, but but not not as a purely altruistic exercise, not as me giving money to you because I think you deserve it. I, I, I don't think about myself, I only, only give away. And that's because it's nothing wrong with giving away with a purely altruistic motive. But in the end, it will not provide enough support, enough mobilization. To me, solidarity is a, means something else. And if you look at, for instance, the, the, the labor movement or the solidarity and NATO or other uses of the concept, it's not about altru- altruism, it's about what I would call an enlightened self-interest. The workers organized and, and helped each other because if I help you with this problem, to get you, if I help you to, uh, with, uh, to get higher wages here or support your fight for, for uh, decent working conditions, you will support me the next time. Or, in, on, or what, what we call the solidarity within NATO. If we back you when you're attacked, you will back us when we are attacked. So solidarity is more of an enlightened self-interest. And I will argue that the future of development cooperation lies more in solidarity or an enlightened self-interest than in just pure altruism. And, and I think I mean, the most obvious example, the easiest for many to see is of course maybe climate change, where I mean, it doesn't matter where we cut emissions, because it, but it, it helps us all. So it actually helps uh, many poor countries in the uh, global south with uh, long coastlines and very low altitudes that emissions are cut elsewhere. 
and the opposite around helps us in Norway if emissions are cut or renewable energy is produced elsewhere. But the corona crisis is, of course, another, I mean, obvious example of the same thing. We will not be immunized before most of the world is immunized, or at least we will just have to stay in Norway and never travel again. And the same for Germans or, or and the Chinese and so on. But I think also that many other aspects of development cooperation uh, have part of parts of the same thing. Global inequality is not only a problem in the poorest country; it's a problem for stability and security in many places. Migration plays into uh, is an issue in, uh, uh, of uh, with advantages and disadvantages for many countries. It's not just about whether you're a recipient of migrants or you're a country where people are migrating from. So many of the issues we are trying to deal with, whether it be health or, or climate change or inequality of others, have this perspective. And, and in my view, we should think of development aid and cooperation and other terms, or and remittances and other uh, types of capital flows in that perspective. That's really interesting, Bodvedar. Do you see a difference between what I termed the national interest earlier and your concept of enlightened self-interest. And I'm asking because, and you and I have talked about this before, about the Chinese model of development, about win-win, the talk about you help me, you know, I'll, I'll help you, maybe not now, I don't need anything from you now, maybe in the near future. Is your idea of enlightened self-interest at least it sounds to me a bit like the Chinese um, model. And the Chinese approach, or not a model, an approach is particularly interesting. And I've been arguing about uh, this, this point in, in many, um, on many occasions, is that the Chinese have been extremely good at making so-called recipients aware that it isn't free. You know, there is something down the line and, and whatever gift or whatever assistance you get is not conditioned on the typical Western conditionalities or good governance, etc., but more, and they use the term solidarity. It is about partnerships. It is about, you know, South-South cooperation, all of this. And I feel that that version of enlightened self-interest, if you can call it, is more persuasive, is more appealing to some leaders in these countries than, say, our own strategies, where in the West we do not necessarily explicitly say, this is what we want from you. So, my question is, do you see a difference between, say, outright national interest, political, rewarding allies who vote with you in the UN, versus something down the line, which maybe China wants, versus something where you and your organization could be very clear that this is not charity free money. We also expect something from you. And I ask you this also because your own organization often has talked in the past of ownership. You know, this kind of, it just can't be a one-sided process. No, it's a good question. I think there's a difference and a quite big difference, but I understand that you're asking because it's not obvious. Actually, yesterday I read an article in Foreign Affairs by former Minister or Secretary of Defense in the U.S., Robert Gates, and also a former CIA director and 
He's been on the National Security Council for several Republican presidents, and later also worked with Obama, actually, in the Obama administration. Um, and he was arguing for for what he called, he, he says that there's an over-militarization of U.S. foreign policy, which is interesting, and he was uh, arguing for more development aid from the U.S., but it but for it to be more closely connected with the national self-interest. And uh, also in the U.S. debate, if maybe you have seen like others, Boris Johnson arguing uh, for why they're uh, they're making DFID now part of the uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, he's also using a very purely national interest argument, which I consider quite far from what we are discussing now. What I I saying, and just for the listeners to understand what they are saying, it was Boris Johnson was saying was that we should rather spend money on Ukraine which in our, is in our very narrowly sense a very security interest we have, rather on Zambia, who <laughs> he didn't say, but he was implying, what's Zambia got to do, to do with us? And also Robert Gates is also arguing in, in, along the same lines. We should give money and expect things for U.S. direct national interest. And people, people arguing for national interest certainly have a good time these days. The Chinese variation is a bit more... I know it may be a bit more sophisticated, like you say, Don, because because it it kind of it it it's 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 like it plays on different strings in a way to countries, but of course down the line, my impression is is that that also the Chinese version of what they call solidarity is closely connected with their their self interest, but maybe more with a long term political interest. They are. They are willing to think really, really long term about what they're doing. Is my impression in in Africa, but I mean, you're the, you're the expert more than me here. The difference to these versions compared to what I call solidarity or enlightened self interest is uh, one: it's not about Norway or Sweden or Germany or the U.S. It's not about our national short term interest. It's about long term common interests. I would not argue for any aid that's of interest for Norway, but not for the recipient country, if you see what I mean. While I think when I read Robert Gates and, and Boris Yeltsin, no, no, Yeltsin um, Boris Johnson, they are saying that it should primarily be in our interest. I would say that Norwegian national interests or UK national interests cannot play a direct role. The point is that we can also have an interest in many of the things we are actually investing in because there are many things that are things that are global common goods or common interests. So that's the first point. And the second is of course that if we are um, when we are talking about solidarity and these kinds of enlightened self-interest investments we also have to have a perspective that there are things that could be good development for the world, even though we don't see we can see, we even though we can't read it in our national budget or or in a, di- a direct interest for us. So maybe the the notion of that the, the playing down the notion of the national is the first uh, major point. Then of course 
I would also argue that for aid to be knowledge-based still plays uh, an important role. My impression is that uh, in the in both the Chinese version and the Western version of, of strong national interests, one is saying that interests have a primacy to knowledge about what works. I strongly agree to that, disagree to that. I think that the primacy of knowledge base of a knowledge based development cooperation is extremely important. If something if if something doesn't work, uh, even though it's in our interest, we should not spend aid money on it. And that, but of course, that goes for my my view of how policy policy should be formed in any issue. But I think that that there may be at least one of the biggest problems with too much of the aid the, or the, the donor money that's out there is that we know way too little about if it actually works to to gain the the person process we have. And that should be, a, in my opinion, that should be a, a, an important imperative for the money we spend. As an academic, this is wonderful for me to hear that you're interested in knowledge-based policies. Uh, and, and I'd like to return to this point later. If I can just pursue this national interest bit a little bit further, you're, you're aware that in recent years, it's not just the China-Africa summits or the India-Africa summits, but we've also had Russia-Africa summits. We've had now the UK-Africa summit in January of this year, February. And then Germany has also had similar you know, things. So I wonder whether, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, for many years, we've been saying that the Nordic model is different. The OECD has often said that, you know, it's the Nordic countries and maybe the Netherlands, which really has prioritized, say, poverty reduction as the major feature of their development assistance policies, whereas many other bigger powers have focused on all kinds of other issues. But we are, we've also, in, say, Norway, moved away a bit in recent years. There's been much more focus on the role of the private sector, something you know that I know you are also uh, interested in. We're talking a different type of language these days. So my question to you is, in this world that we live in now, with these increasingly sort of bilateral or you know, summits between a whole continent and one major European country or an Asian country or, uh, or the US, what role do you see for the Nordics? Is this going to change? And, and I ask you this because you've been the minister. Uh, you've been the minister of education. You've been the minister for the environment. Do you see us still having some sort of the moral superpower? As President Obama said, we are world champions in certain things, right? Or, or do you see us becoming much more part of the rest of the world when it comes to development aid? I think Obama's laconic comment was something like, if, if only everyone else could be like the Scandinavians, which is, uh, in a way, and I also, I read a, um, an interview or, or you heard a podcast maybe with, um, uh, what's his name again, uh, Michael Ignatieff, the, the Canadian academic and former politician. 
who I think, yeah, I, I really uh, like him and his thought. And, and he was also saying, he was calling us the damn Scandinavians. <laughs> They're so perfect always. And 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 I think if my impression, maybe more from my past as a politician and also as a CEO of WWF Norway, where I traveled intensively, uh, is that the idea of the Nordics and also the reality of a Nordic or Northern European community, sometimes only the Nordics or even just Scandinavia, sometimes with the Netherlands, sometimes with Germany, even the UK can be part of it from time to time. It still exists uh, in many policy spheres and it does exist also in development aid, partly because we are we are willing to give a higher proportion of our GDP than most other countries, and partly because we are uh, we have been willing to prioritize the main goal, po- poverty re- reduction, and to also to not show, show um, our national interest on, or not or, or play down our national interest compared to to many other countries. But on the other hand. Um, uh, I think it's correct that 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 you know that it's it's a blurry uh, division. It, it's not a Nordic model versus an Anglo-American model. It's more blurry than that. For instance, the role of the private sector and and, and getting more investments from the private sector has definitely started playing a bigger role in in the Nordics uh, as well. For instance, uh, Denmark and Netherlands have become leaders doing that is my impression more than many other countries and I like you 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 mentioned but I'm a big fan of doing more of that which is because I simply because I think that to get to get enough capital flowing into poorer countries you have to engage the private sector more I I can't just can't imagine how a development aid is realistically going to do it alone and in many middle-income countries, it's been a great success. The problem which is unsolved is how to also get capital flows from the private sector moving into the uh, the lower-income countries and the and the lower-middle-income countries. That's a that's a huge challenge. And also, of course, uh, I'm skeptical uh, about aid being used just for the purpose of getting your own countries private companies to invest but i'm a big fan of using a where we know, where it's knowledge based to actually develop the private sector in a recipient country that's a different story but, but overall um my take on it is that it's not wrong to this to, to i mean interests are there it would be very naive i think just to 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 pretend they're not important but you can uh, you can uh, separate between pure national security or economic interest in a nation from what's long-term enlightened self-interest, where we are investing in things that things that are also good for us, like a common global health uh, 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 change in the health situation or or climate change and things like that. Uh, and uh, it's also I mean, important for the aid community to communicate with the private sector and to be willing to, be willing to accept that 
they will only invest if there's a, a self-interest there also, economically. We will not get the private sector to invest unless they can expect a return. And aid can play a role in, in, uh, in uh, actually getting, uh, or for instance, in, in reducing risk for the private sector. So let me pursue this a little further, Valveda, because one of the arguments in favor of a Nordic-Norwegian model approach to aid for a long time has been that uh, we are a small country, we may be rich, etc., but we've, through our generosity, we've uh, secured a seat at the table where decisions are made. This is our way. This is our soft power. We're not a military power. We don't have a colonial history. But aid, solidarity has been the brand that has, or the Nobel Peace Prize, has secured us a, a seat at the table, where, which is usually these tables are reserved for the big powers. But the counter-argument, or in recent years, people would say, some people would argue that precisely because we're moving in support of the private sector, we're doing what many others are doing, maybe explicitly even in national politics, talking about self-interest, etc., that traditional focus on solidarity that distinguished us and that gave us this soft power status is gradually being eroded. And to sort of argue again against the private sector, and I, I see your points about the private sector, some of the recent arguments has been that, you know, well, there's been a lot of rhetoric, and, and we'll return to this later when we talk about sustainable development, the private sector has not really lived up to its its promise in terms of development finance. So a lot of people are saying, you know, there's just too much emphasis on this. So, But I wondered if you could just reflect a bit on the soft power. Do you still feel we have soft power even in the absence of, say, altruism and solidarity and this more recent shift away? I wouldn't say away necessarily, but including much more private sector interest. It's true that the private sector hasn't lived up to its promise, like it has not lived up to its promise in fighting climate change. But, and, but neither have states or national governments. Uh, I mean, Norway have... Uh, most countries don't deliver on the US uh, 0.7 target for... Uh, uh, 0.7% target for uh, development the aid. UN the UN target. Even though it's set by ourselves. Only five countries currently meet the target. So both the public and the private sector haven't delivered. The same goes, for instance, for climate change. But is the solution to give up the private sector? No, definitely. The solution is to engage them in different ways, uh, to, to look for tools that seem to work, that seem to actually create more investments, and, and so on. Uh, but then re returning to, to their main question, I don't think it's true that Norwegian soft power is declining or smaller today than it was 23 years ago. If I look at the period I have been active in, let's say, Norwegian politics and society, it's about, or in, on a certain level, it's about 20 years now, I see no tendency of that happening, really, uh, to be honest. Uh, we have a very solid reputation uh, around the world. We 
have some we have dilemmas that are here. Some of them are maybe smaller than they used to be. Others, uh, like the oil dilemma, is bigger than it used to be. Um, and in terms of development aid, I haven't noticed. A, I haven't noticed a change in 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 other countries' view of of Norwegian aid. And and truth is, I mean, I don't think Norway should do uh, development cooperation because it will give us a good reputation and soft power. But I think it's true that when we have chosen to do it, it does actually deliver to that. And I think it's one of the reasons why it has so broad political support in Norway is that it, I mean, for some, it's a purely altruistic motive or, or a purely traditional motive. For others, uh, it's um, maybe what I'm arguing for, a solidarity or an enlightened self-interest motives. For others, it's uh, part of a broader security policy, Norwegian power in the world or um, uh, agenda. And for others, again, it could be all of them. Uh, and my impression, in, in Norwegian politics, the only group that's very critical of development aid really is those who want us to withdraw from the world which is logical that's also the same you see in the US and, and the UK debate the conservatives in the UK I'm becoming a little bit political now but yeah the conservatives in the UK have for quite some time supported a high level of development aid and they've had internal debates but many of them have but the new tendency within that party the inspired by US and others, which is which wants kind of a much more self-interest and withdrawal perspective, the Brexit uh, 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 fraction of the party, they are more skeptical, and that's that's logical from that worldview. But from a not from a worldview which is, I mean, conservative or even even very self-interest centered, aid could still play a, a role. Like I like I showed the Robert Gates, who's a, an American conservative, was arguing. Narrow it down to Norway. Okay, so we are pretty generous. Was it thirty-seven or thirty-nine billion Norwegian krona last year? Thirty-seven point six last year, and this year probably up to uh, some not thirty-nine something. Yeah. So one of the many uh, discussions that some of us who are interested in aid, etc., uh, have indulged in in recent years is is of course Nor- Norway's one percent target. Right, so the 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 one percent GNP target in aid, which, with the growth of the Norwegian economy, is just increasing mm-hmm. every year, and there are some concerns that we just don't have the capacity to spend it. Your own organization uh, has been or has undergone a reform. Uh, there have been lots of uh, attempts, I suppose, also here, just like in the UK, of merging and. You know, changing things in terms of how NORAD operates. There have been concerns that you need to hire more of my students, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, you know, who've been working uh, on these issues. Um, and then there are these concerns that 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 one percent target is just 
it's just not the right thing we should be doing we should be giving you know if we have the ability to do something not just talk about the quantity we should be talking about the quality and in this context i uh, remember listening to you i didn't attend the last norad conference but i watched it live and you said something about how power is derived from facts and i wanted you to elaborate a bit on that because i were you referring to and i and i know you said something like you love statistics and numbers is is that kind of fact that can be measured that you are referring to what about the types of things we can't measure so dignity and i ask you this because it is not just the amount of money we give but how we give it how it is channelized how it is perceived how it is received any gift no matter big or small has certain implications both to the giver and to the recipient so a lot of questions here bundle but if i can roughly ask you to reflect a bit on the role of facts as you see it because this is related to aid effectiveness what we've been talking about what works etc but also aspects that we can't measure like dignity yeah i i use that the term a lot that that um uh that the power uh, uh, should be uh should derive from uh, from facts or uh, as we say in it rhymes in norwegian fakta bör ha makta uh but but it, it's an important distinction is that i'm i'm not saying that uh that facts do have the power i'm saying they facts should have the power to decide policies um and it's an it's important to me uh, maybe also from my background as a politician because i've seen way too often i mean i think that that the ideal uh in politics should be that you you have goals visions directions you want to reach and where where you have when ideologies and ideas fight each others but when you come to, when you come to the means which are the which are the uh the um, uh the means we use to to reach these goals these ends we should be more pragmatic we should use uh the tools or the means that that actually work but i've seen way too often that political debates stand up as debates about different policy tools uh, really without where 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 facts about how how they work seem to have no effect on many politicians that's why this is important and 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 also in development aid not only it's not not particularly much i mean this is common in many sectors of society but definitely also in in development aid um and it's i, I have to say an ambition for me to develop norwegian development cooperation or to to do that more based on knowledge of what works and doesn't work and and i mean whether a politician feels that climate change or or education is maybe uh, the most important part of uh, of its work that that it's i mean it, it's a political question also 
but how do we how do we reduce emissions or how do we get people to schools there we have a lot of that we have a lot of knowledge about i don't agree with it i mean the one percent goal is not uh, is not making uh, uh is not a, um, a, um, a guarantee for quality but it's not a problem for quality either I mean, you can always discuss that goal. Uh, I, I, it's a political discussion, but I'm quite sure that those who say it's been uh, that it, that it's stopped discussion on quality are wrong. You can even argue that in some ways it's in you know when the when the amount is set and when we actually reach that goal from that time on, it's be made made it more more uh, relevant to discuss how we spend the money. Uh, so, I I think that we should focus less on that goal and focus more on how we spend the money, and that's possible to do whether we choose to have one percent or zero point nine or one point one percent of our GDP uh, allocated for development aid in the future. I'm glad you've mentioned several times the what works uh, aspect. You know, several years ago, uh, after having taught development studies for a whole year at the University of Oslo uh, and talked about everything that did not work, my students said, you know, give us some hope because we also want to work for NORAD or or the UN agencies, etc. And uh, academics like me, I suppose we find it pretty easy to be negative and to find out all the problems and you know the critical aspect because that's that's how we're trained and so they challenged me to think about give a talk on what works and i found it pretty challenging uh, i thought it was fantastic but that got me thinking and i developed a module and i later on had online courses on what works and the reception of course has been very positive and we've had uh, students from 145 countries in the world it's just amazing because there was a hunger for this but there was also a reaction that by talking about what works, you're shifting, this is the criticism against me, you're shifting the focus away from all the challenges. So, and, and you've been a part also of the civil society. Um, my God, you've really had hats in all kinds of fields. Won't you? Like, so from the civil society perspective, I got this kind of pushback that uh, don't just talk about success stories because then you're undermining you know, areas where we need more attention. So it's this kind of a fine balance. And I was trying to argue that I, I, I accept that there are those challenges, but we should also be talking about what works. So the thing is, what I'm trying to say here is that I think that is also a polarized debate because some people say what works or the question what works depends on the kind of questions you ask, as you were saying earlier, right? I mean, is it a political question? Is it very specific? So what is it that we're looking for? You know, we can always find a success story if that is that is what we really want to to highlight. So I wonder what you think about that, because even in, say, the Norwegian taxpayer would not really be convinced if you came and said, oh, you know, we've given all this money, but it's not having an effect. How do you see that in terms of balancing success, promises versus things that we really don't know? Should we continue with those things? That's a really great reflection. Uh, let me start. With, you know the the reaction you got when you were uh, talking about what work. I, I mean, that's the kind of what what about this that I'm not a big fan of. I mean, you can always say to someone when they are talking about something, you should have talked about the other thing instead. 
I mean, yeah, that, uh, it, it's not a good argument to me. Uh, and truly, uh, hearing about the challenges of Africa or Malawi specifically, for instance, it, that it's not a problem that we hear too little about the challenges of poor countries. Uh, rather the opposite. We know from uh, from work, uh, from statistics we have in Murat, that almost everything we hear about the poorest countries in the world is about the problems and challenges they have. And when we hear about issues concerning de uh, development, it's most oftenly about all the problems that they're supposed to solve. Too little about the things that actually work. Many people have a, an outdated picture of Africa, for instance, uh, which I think it's quite important to fight. Uh, but then, returning to the question of how to measure, how, what works, how do we know? Well, I think first we have to admit that some things are probably impossible to measure well. We, we can't know. And let me give an example. I'll give you an example. In Norwegian Development Corporation, we give quite a lot to civil society and civil society cooperation compared to many other countries. Uh, parts, partly they're used as, I mean, service deliverers, but it's also because we just want to support civil I mean, we think it's important to build civil society cooperation with and build a civil society in, in countries with weak democracies uh, or without democracies. Is that, I mean, is, does it work? How can we? I mean, it, it's 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 belief based, right? We uh, and here's the enlightened self interest. Also, we don't know. We can't say to that we know that if uh, the, if a country gets a strong civil society, becomes a democracy, we know that they will develop better. I mean, we've seen countries doing really well without that. Uh, but we believe that it's good. I believe that it's good for the world uh, if more countries are liberal democracies than. Than, uh, than authoritarian regimes. And we believe that we have seen uh, in many countries uh, uh, developments where civil society can play a role, where an alternative, just someone criticizing the government, mobilizing people, can play a role. I don't think we ever can measure well the effect of that. Uh, and there are other examples. Uh, but on the opposite side, we, ca we can measure how many people contribute uh, uh, illnesses like tuberculosis or AIDS or malaria every year, country by country, region by region. And we also do know quite a lot now from, from experiments, for instance, of what works to fight these illnesses. And, that, and we have found for some, like malaria, successful recipes. For polio, even more so, while tuberculosis has shown it have to be really tough to eradicate. Uh, so uh, I'm not, I, I don't think that we should have a quantitative, uh, uh, I mean, that there should be a goal that, that, that you have to be able to prove something quantitatively for everything we do. But I think that where that is possible, we should put, uh, put, put a lot of weight on quantitative studies. I think we should aim at measuring things that can reasonably be measured, like like carbon emissions or, or how many people die from diseases. And also, I think that maybe more we should do, do uh, research as we go and do systematic studies. And, and, and of course, 
even more so in a Nurad or a Norwegian perspective, know about the studies and the vast literature out there. In many instances, for, a, for an institution like Nurad, more than producing it ourselves, knowing about what's been tested is, is the challenge today. There's just so many things uh, to talk to you about. Uh, I, I must just say, this is mid-conversation. It is a pleasure to have a former colleague or a former fellow academic here about Vegard. And thanks for coming. By the way, it's, the sun is out in Norway and you're sitting inside here with me. This thing about uh, knowledge, I think it is you know, wonderful to hear you say this. You said this right at the beginning of this conversation. You mentioned this now. As academics, we're interested in doing critical, balanced, independent research. And when, when we do find something that has worked, which is seldom the case, but we'd like to, I would like to encourage research in that field. Of course, I'm interested in disseminating this uh, information to policymakers. And if you recall, a few years ago, you and I were in a session uh, where the then Norwegian government reduced research funding for Asia, remember? There's the Asia network that had organized the session and I was reflecting on why India and China are suddenly not going to be, research on India and China are suddenly not going to be financed. And one of the things you mentioned to me then is, you said, Dan, you should actually call your MPs. You should have a direct line and you should actually tell them. You were telling me, you were urging me to be more proactive in disseminating my knowledge, which is actually why I have this podcast, by the way. But similarly, you also said that policymakers and politicians should also be actively seeking uh, knowledge from researchers. And then, of course, I hear all the others, including some of your colleagues who say, we just don't have the time. You know, this is the, so what we're talking about is knowledge being produced by researchers and then the policymakers have their own set of constraints and never the train shall meet. So my challenge to you or I'm you know, as, as you're still relatively fresh in NORAD, is to, and we've discussed this before, how can we bridge that gap between research and policy? How can we move beyond just reading the abstracts of an article that has been published and then moving on to actually reading the entire article? And once we know that knowledge as a policymaker, how do we filter this, spread this, mainstream it, adopt it in policy making. So what are your thoughts on that, bridging the gap between yeah. research and policy? A, a very good question. Of course, what you can't bridge is that some politicians actively seek knowledge, other don't, others don't care. And also some academics actively call their MPs or, or create arenas or invite politicians. Others are happy just to do their research. But what you can do is that you can work structurally, whether you're an academic, academic institution, a ministry or director or whatever, you can use with the work to develop the structure of this. And I've seen, I mean, uh, just giving me an example of a, of a ministry I know a little bit um, still, and the Ministry of uh, the Education, because I yeah, I used to be minister there quite a, quite a few years ago now, but still, um, they have, uh, they, I think, they have a very uh, developed operation to uh, gain knowledge uh, from uh, and to to use uh, meta studies and, and uh, knowledge in their ministry and uh, and also in Norwegian uh, the Norwegian school system 
in the ministry, they have uh, an own section for this, which actively works with with lo- I mean, looking into what's happening on the uh, research front, where w- what kind of knowledge do, is available out there, and also by spreading it to the other parts of the ministry, those who are working more operationally with whether it be higher education or kindergartens or whatever. Uh, and not all ministries or directorates do that. Uh, and th- th- and that I think that's really important because in a ministry, the, the civil service will, will uh, influence politicians a lot. And if they... And, and some ministries... Uh, and so, of course, I mean, in the civil service, like in academia, like in politics... There are paradigms, or, or, or you know, you. There are ways of thinking that are just there, and if if you don't put a lot of weight on in in understanding what's happening, looking into new knowledge and so on, you can easily just have your paradigm. And, and I've seen. I mean, I've been working on the prime minister's office, so I had the the ability to compare. I've seen ministers more like that, while others are much more looking at. And openly find looking at what's happening. What, what how can we do this? Um, and then also, I think from from a Nurad perspective, uh, I wanna I wanna develop a culture and a system for us even more than we do today to use knowledge when we allocate resources, but also a culture within the organization to be open. For to new knowledge, not only base ourselves on on the the ways of thinking that's been uh, been around for a long time, and, and I think maybe that's one of the most important things you can do. The other things, uh, uh, except from from uh, institutionalizing, is to create arenas, and that's maybe one of the big problems that there are not many arenas today where researchers meet civil servants and politicians. Of course, there are some, uh, but m- uh, my impression is that the researchers I know predominantly meet other researchers in a w- I mean, vast number of conferences and seminars and, and, and dialogues and so on, while politicians tend to meet uh, 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 the private sector, uh, unions, uh, groups of voters more than academia. Of course, there are academics speaking on conferences for politicians and the opposite way around, but still meeting places where those who are going to do policy in, in ministries and, and directorates and, and politicians and so on, where, where we actually discuss and meet academia is, uh, is lacking in my Let's just move on a little bit to what your organization has been doing. And of course, I don't expect you to answer for everything that has been done in the past. But I was looking at the reports from last year, our statistics. And um, I noticed, of course, that unlike, say, the Chinese or some other agencies, governments, we tend to outsource a lot of the money we um, provide and develop assistance to major international organizations. It's the World Bank, 
through uh, various projects, trust funds, that's the UNDP, UN organizations, and then through civil society organizations based in Norway, but also in the global north. And I have noticed increasingly this criticism that we are outsourcing, not doing things ourselves. And in that process, this outsourcing actually suits us well because we just give the money and uh, we can argue that they pool the resources, will have greater impact. But if things don't go right, it does not necessarily, you know, fall back on us. So um, I, I notice at least, and I'd like to ask you, do you think we should have much more of an active role in projects, you know, rolling up our sleeves and doing things and sending Peace Corps volunteers and students, uh, enlarging our NORAD, uh, the NORAD section in the embassies versus this outsourcing? That's one part of the question. And the second part relates to civil society that you also mentioned earlier. And I've been noticing, and I will have uh, later this week a guest on my show, Degan Ali, uh, and, and others who've been arguing that, uh, you know, the southern NGOs, civil society organizations, do most of the work, take most of the risks, and yet aid agencies seem to be providing most of the money to the northern NGOs. And the arguments are, of course, the northern NGOs provide greater credibility, accountability, the taxpayers will be they won't be worried all of this so a lot of people say we should be actually supporting organizations on the ground much more often those who are taking the risks and some of these organizations are saying that the un and the world bank are too distant they, they don't really know so what are your reflections on this kind of outsourcing that we've had of late and do you see your organization your agency supporting more local organizations and taking the risk because there's always the risk that they may not have the capacity or they may not be able to report according to your standards. It's one of the big debates, not only within NORAD, but of course in many other institutions and I think also with civil society and other actors. And through this, uh, my, my main answer is that I would like to know much more about what actually works different situations but because I think we know too little and there are very different views but NORAD has of course developed from being an implementing organization to being to not implementing ourselves to being a, 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 a I mean purely a donor unlike for instance uh, uh, the French AFD or, or USAID who also implement actually do projects uh, and and also many the other thing that should be mentioned is that we have moved towards putting a, a, a huge degree of what we do through multilateral organizations. But but where we are we where we are where we stand out is not the the, the, the amount of core support, but the amount of uh, project based or direct support to projects through multilateral organizations. Yeah, while we do very little bilaterally, really, compared to many others. Uh, so it's true, if you if you put those two on top of each other, of course, it, it's a picture of a very efficient organization working a lot through different kinds of multilateral donors, UN, the World Bank, Gavi, and other 
not not uh, uh, more privately based ones, and and spending money through others basically. It has some obvious advantages. Uh, first, of course, we are contributing to strengthening these organizations, which are really important around the world. And like you say, we're pooling money with, other, with others. It's obviously an advantage. Uh, one, what could be a disadvantage is, of course, that, uh, and, and many argue, is that many of them are further away from the actual local uh, situation. But also, we don't know enough about the administrative uh, burden then. We, we, when we support something bilaterally or do something ourselves, we know approximately how much goes to administration efforts or to Norwegian civil society. We know that we, uh, we have a low administrative representative overhead yeah, uh, compared to others. When we go through the UN organizations, we are not able to fully understand down to, I mean, to all the levels money go through then, how big this, how much disappears administratively, and uh, we know we know how much uh, Gavi takes, but or or uh, the UMDP, but it, there are many levels before money actually is channeled out locally. So I think it's difficult to know for sure what's most efficient, and of course, very different situation probably require different answer to questions, but. That is one of it's one of the uh, the questions that we are aiming to understand better in the project we've set up now internally to to look at uh, technical and other issues to understand to, to be able to to uh, um, uh, spend money better and I, I think it's one of the yeah the key questions as a donor as a pure which are the channels that actually produce best results in which instances? Let's move on to something I know that you that is close to your heart, and that is the concept of sustainable development. And we have since 2015, September, the world has been talking about the 2030 agenda, which is not too far away. We're talking about sustainable development goals. The, the good thing is that, of course, the private sector has shown interest. There's more growing awareness uh, of the sustainable development goals, etc. But the sad thing is that progress has been extremely slow. And most UN reports, now we have this high-level political forum, you know, there's been some success, but it's just going too slowly. And I, been, you know, we've been studying this in India, in China, in Malawi, in Kenya, Rwanda. We're looking at sustainable development, and there's a lot of positive thing, momentum in terms of, say, energy, in terms of is now growing focus on inequality. But my impression, and I had the Oslo SDG initiative, and if I can be a little critical here, I feel that somehow this agenda has not really caught the attention of the, of the world leaders. And it is not surprising because these are ambitious goals and some people say these goals are just meant to, they're ambitious because they're meant to fail. Even if we reach something, that's good, it's symbolic. There's so many other things. There's COVID. It's all pushing us back. 
What are your thoughts on this? Because one of the things you said earlier was that there are no developed and developing countries. We're all in the same boat. It's not about donors and recipients. And, and the sustainable development agenda, of course, makes that very clear. And yet, just to get that kind of attention, say, on extreme poverty reduction or on gender equality or on climate has been a challenge. A lot of low-income country governments tell me we simply can't prioritize or we, we are asked not to prioritize when we have to because we have so little money. Others say we are barely finished with the Millennium Development Goals and now you're introducing a new idea, SDGs. Still others say these are these are just very elitist. We don't have the local ownership. But but on the other hand, and I know you're a big fan of this, right? So sustainable development is wonderful because it talks about both the environment, which you've been a minister for, and development. How do you see that being merged? What what are your thoughts? Do you are you optimistic about the 2030 agenda? Well, it's a bit hard to be optimistic about 2030 these days after COVID-19. And and truly it will be extremely difficult to reach the goals uh, definitely while I'm still a bit optimistic let me explain a little bit first uh, it's true that I'm a big fan of that agenda mostly for two reasons it the, I think it changed the way of thinking and and the uh, and the way the agenda was set out in ways that were necessary and important firstly like you said, by merging different perspectives, the social development perspective, the economic, the, the environmental, into one, which was absolutely necessary, I think. Uh, and that was important. And secondly, because it turned an agenda from something that belonged to the, the poorest countries and with support from others into a common global agenda. And not only it, it was not only about countries, also about this agenda belongs to you and me and the private sector and NGOs and everyone. And and my clear impression is that the SDG agenda, as after five years, it has caught on much more broadly than the Millennium Development Goals were able to do in fifteen years. Um, maybe I think you see it in the private sector even more than in in government politics it has really caught on and changed the way you talk about development sustainable development in the private sector that's a really positive thing but then there's of course another change from the millennium development goals which makes it almost almost impossible or very hard to reach the goals while most of the millennium development goals where percentage changes, you know, you, you were trying to achieve goals going from a certain level to another level. The, the SDGs are rights-based goals and goals where, where the goal is to give everyone access to some, you know, uh, universal access to, to clean energy, to uh, eradicate poverty and so on. And even though we were able to make, we should be able to make progress going, you know, the last mile would be, will be like, you know, of course, extremely difficult. That's, that's one. I mean, it's, it's, I will support, I mean, that's the way we had to move as a world. 
but it also has, it's it's given us something we know from other sectors in society goals that are or, or maybe visions that are extremely uh, challenging to reach uh, but I will argue that sometimes it's the right thing to do to set a, a vision you know when we are talking about dignity things that has to do with, with every that human rights the, the the goal has to be high and and we can't just set a, a a limit saying okay it's okay it's okay if most people have a dignified life but the, the, the other the other challenge is of course the financing and that's a, a huge problem now and and that's a, an area where i think we have to turn a lot more attention to because uh, it's, we, if we, when we have when we have accepted high goals like that it it's also a responsibility to act uh, accordingly when it comes to financing and neither governments nor the private sector have done so far uh, and that is maybe and maybe especially uh, i would send a challenge to the private sector here because many parts of the private sector has stepped up in, the, in terms of thinking about their own operations for instance on different development SDGs, uh, SDG goals, but not accordingly when it comes to investments uh, in the poorer countries. And that's an par important part of the agenda that is also now very much challenged by the COVID-19 crisis. You know, when I reflect on what I've been studying and reading of late, terms of sustainable development, I feel that it is really a wonderful concept because it talks about both environment, climate change, and also uh, development. And I suppose we can take some credit for it, you know, in the Brundtland Commission's role in defining it, etc. So sustainable development as a concept, of course, has ebbed and flowed. And it, there was a lot of attention in the initial decades or the initial years after it was formulated by the Brundtland Commission, at least the definition. And then it sort of ebbed and flowed. It didn't really get the kind of traction from the major powers. It was rejuvenated in 2015. And I suppose when I read the literature on this and the studies we've been doing, most people are actually very supportive of the idea. And the 2030 Agenda provides that platform of bringing these diverse set of issues I suppose the challenge is picking and choosing because the idea is that you're actually supposed to not pick and choose. You're supposed to see the whole uh, list of goals because and they are, they are exhaustive. And for some countries, that is, that is a, a big issue. As uh, some Indian scholars would tell me, you're talking about fifth floor issues when we're stuck in the first floor. We have immediate concerns that have to be resolved, right? It's We, we can't have... It's kind of an ambitious focus until we resolve, you know, who gets what, which region, which group. There are all these, the, the politics. So that's what I'm trying to get at, Bodvega, is that I feel that sometimes in this 2030 agenda, there's a lot of wishful thinking, right? So, so and, and I suppose that is great. It's just that the politics of what comes first, who should be prioritized, which goals should come first, is a bit obscured. And it gives the impression that this is too idealistic. It is not anchored in reality. But, I mean, 
that's that's in a way true. But I, the world is political, Dom. It's it, you know, it's it's not a research based set of the the eighteen goals that are are. I mean, the the, the after a long ten years of research, it's not like the UN climate UN climate or uh, 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 panel on climate change, right? It's 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 a political negotiation. Uh, and it ended up where you know in a situation where well we'll take all these goals where uh, uh, and and uh, and include everyone. I think there are I don't remember enormous like hundred and ninety two indicators and something like that below that. Over two hundred. Over two hundred. Okay. <laughs> it's but, but the point is that it's it's too it's it, it is first the agenda is too complex. The goals are extremely high, but maybe we shouldn't think about them as as accurate goals, where the where the ambition is to you know to clock in perfectly, top of everyone. It's an agenda of um, more of uh, ambition uh, than 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 the. It should think of it as a as a an agenda of ambition more than an agenda of accurate goals. Then of course um, the other dimension is uh, I mean that Guru Allen Brundtland once said that and and in Norwegian famously to Norwegians uh, everything is connected to everything else and I'm <laughs> I'm a really I I thought that was so stupid I remember I was a young man at the time twenty or something and uh, what what does that mean now I think it's you know one of the wisest things I said it, it's really true but at the same time you're not able to act on anything. If you can't separate things, you need it for your organization, for your investment. You need to, you need to, to actually separate into something that you can work with. And that I think has what has happened with the SDGs is that companies and countries and, and and the NGOs do that. They do their job as part of it, and then they try to do little harm on other parts. Uh, uh, and and I think we. In a way, let's accept that uh, that that's better. But some big actors like Nurad, for instance, will have to take broader considerations. Uh, governments will have to do that. But still, uh, it is uh, it is challenging to both find your niche where, where you can make an impact and still uh, look at the the broader picture. But that's yeah. That, that's the world. The, the world is a complicated place yeah, and a very political place. No I, no, I agree. And that was exactly my point, is that the illusion one gets from the 2030 agenda, or the, the impression, is that it is easy, everything can be done, whereas in reality it is about politics. So in my work I've been arguing that as much as we should be promoting this all-encompassing, wonderful agenda, we can't ignore the daily, the politics of it. That it is about prioritization. It is about sequencing. Sometimes it is about trade-offs that we can't have all of it at the same time. But you're right. And by the way, you are still a very young man, Bodvega, so don't worry about that. Everything is connected to everything. I mean, you know, and I've had extensive talks with Gro on this. But I wonder, in terms of NORAD, do you think, how, how do you think, we have like less than 10 years now for the 2030 agenda. We should be talking about maybe 2060 agenda as the African Union talks about a much more longer term. What would you like NORAD to do? I mean, what are your priorities? Do you see your uh, your role changing? What is it? Is it health education? 
will it be conditional on countries adopting, showing enthusiasm for the SDGs? Let me first say that, I mean, Nora, my starting point is a very well-run organization uh, with, I mean, extremely skillful and knowledgeable people. I'm, I'm very impressed. And I also see when we try to hire people, we get hundreds of applic- applicants and, and we're like the, what is it, 10th or 11th most popular employer by students from uh, social science and, and the humanities faculties and universities. So so we are really, really lucky. Uh, and we it's also a very established institution. Um, and Norwegian Development Corporation is, I mean, if you generalize, it's well run and 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 quite good and gets good reviews uh, compared to many other donor countries and so on. But with huge challenges also, of course. And and maybe if, if I were to put out a few of, of the things that I think is important. The first is re- returning to what I've said several times already, that uh, um, that we should, that the fact should have the power in, in policy making and also in, in manage, aid management. It's a hugely important issue, I think, uh, and to develop that even more is important. And, and there's a specific reason why it's important for NORAD now, and that's because in just a few years, we have gone from managing, just if you go back to 2015 16, we, NORAD managed around 400 million euros. Now, from this year, 2020, we will manage around 2 billion euros. So it's a big change in the administrative setup, giving NORAD a big role. And also the idea is to for the ministry to give the, the policy directions and do the strategy and to give more space within those strategies for NORAD to spend money according to the signals we get. And if we are going to do that well, if we have and will be detailed, manage less detailed, we have to have uh, uh, even more systematic knowledge about what works and what doesn't work, and how do we uh, fulfill the policy goals. So that's that's a huge challenge. Secondly, um, I think that the SDGs, and I think it, I mean, will dominate even more. Right now, we something happened that made the world totally uh, focused on COVID nineteen. Things happen from time to time. But if you look at if you look at the developments over time, we have the Millennium Development Goals, we've got the Sustainable Development Goals. I think these kinds of common agendas will be there, and I think it's a huge and important challenge for Nura to to connect even. I mean, to to develop from being a tradition from the traditional aid thinking to being an important donor and part of this sustain the Sustainable Development Goals. And that means gaining the the knowledge and understanding we have about fighting poverty, but also being able to implement for the other for other sustainable development goals. And if you look at Norwegian aid, it's um, there's many goals, many issues, and we have to accept and f- and be able to fulfill those different policy goals. If I w- if I were to m- to mention uh, uh, one more thing that I think is important uh, for uh, Nora 
it's also to be an even more strategic partner for the, all the uh, our implementing partners. Like you yourself pointed to, we are not implementing ourselves, we are working through others. And to be uh, a good and critical and uh, strategic discussion partner and, uh, and donor, to, whether it be to the World Bank or the UN organizations, Norwegian Civil Society, through the embassies and, uh, and, um, and countries we work directly to, I think is extremely important because that's our, the main tool we have for securing quality. That, that, I've really enjoyed this conversation, by the way. Just very, just absolutely the final issue that I want to talk to you about, and that has to do with our summer holidays. Both of us were on holiday the last two weeks, and the weather was pretty bad. It's been raining, and uh, well, the sun is finally out. But I read in one of you, you used to write a weekly column, I think, for Stavanger often. I, I, it's not a weekly. I, I write, uh, I, I have a, uh, well, how much? I think it's uh, every sixth week. I write still there. Yeah, okay. I still do. But I read in one of your columns you were ranting a bit, or you were dissatisfied with journalists who cover the weather. And I wonder, do you think, and we haven't really had so much time to talk about the environment and all the issues I know that you're also interested in. Do you think we've become better in terms of predicting things? I mean, I, I, I've never used the YR app as much as I have during this summer. We all are stuck, this lockdown, staycation and all of this. Do you think our knowledge about climate, weather, and also in, in journalism, has that improved since the time when you wrote oh, that yes. column? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, this is like, I don't know, two, three, four years. It's not yeah. so long, but it, it's, it's, it's improved a lot. I mean, climate journalism has really developed just the two last years or so. I'm, I'm quite impressed, actually. And I think one reason for that is, of course, that Climate has developed from a from an issue within the periphery of politics and society to very much in the center of of I mean of the private sector politics, even everyday life from time to time. And the other thing is that I think journalism has become much better at connecting the environmental issues and climate, in particularly to to uh, everyday life. And one example is, of course, the weather. Uh, the weather and nature around us also is a good example. Is changing because of climate change. Less so in Norway than in many other places, but much more than many people know. I mean, it's everything from the fact that uh, our sewage system is not at all, uh, uh, does not at all have a capacity that is enough for the uh, future with more uh, rain to the fact that uh, you have natural changes, uh, less snow, for instance, to, of course, uh, uh, I mean, uh, one of the one of the uh, scenarios, a realistic scenarios for Norway, a two-degree scenario, is 40, 30 to 40% rain, more rain, on the West Coast, where it's all rain, already raining a lot. These things are, I mean, they are just normal, realistic, fact-based things. I, I'm not a fan of scaring people. That people should have a bad conscience or feel shame or anything like that. But I'm a big fan of facts also here. Now let me miss, uh, wrap up with one more example. I just read, I don't know, I mean, many of the listeners probably haven't picked up that there's been a long time heat wave in Siberia. I mean, for half a year now, Siberia has seen 
much warmer weather, and we're talking Siberia, right? <laughs> we, we, I, both of us probably think it's always 50 degrees uh, below Celsius all the time. But Siberia has seen much warmer weather than usually for half a year or so, giving a new temperature record of 38 degrees above, I mean, zero, uh, uh, zero, 38 degrees Celsius. And lots of wildfires and things they usually don't see. And there's a new report that has looked into it now. It doesn't only say that it's probably uh, because of climate change. It said it's virtually impossible that so many days in a row with warm, um, with really warm weather would happen without the effects of climate change. So science has also developed just in a few years here and made it much safer for journalists to, to actually look at these kinds of things and report them. Well, Vega Zuliel, it's been such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. You, you know, we can keep talking about all of these issues. I hope you'll come back uh, at a later okay. point. You've only been the director general for half a year, but I'm sure there will be numerous opportunities to continue with this conversation. So thank you very much and Fortchat Musomi. Thank you. Uh, uh, in a few years, there will probably be a lot of things to, to, for you to uh, criticize and, and bring up again on this podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversation too. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is GlobalDevPod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.